Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our study into the book of Isaiah by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here is this week's message. You have your Bibles, you're going to be turning to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, we'll be focusing on that, those verses from 53 today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to come and to worship and to praise the name of Jesus, for he is truly worthy. He is the only one worthy who could break the seal and reveal to us the truth. He's the only one worthy, for he died on the cross to pay the price for our sin. He is the only one worthy, for he rose again on the third day to proclaim himself as victorious over sin, Satan, and death, and to be Lord of lords and King of kings and Lord of our lives. We pray, Father, now as we open the Word of God that you help us to see the truth of the gospel in Isaiah 53. And Father, that we learn how to share the gospel from the Old Testament as well as from the New Testament and to realize the importance of the prophecies that you give to us as you foretell that which is going to happen and that which did take place, just as you said. And I pray that your spirit would be our teacher today. That's our hope. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we introduced to you the fact that we're going to be talking about the gospel according to Isaiah 53. You remember I challenged you last week to think about this, that when it comes to sharing the gospel of Christ, about how a person can be saved and what Jesus Christ did on the cross, what would you use if you were going to talk to a friend or family member? Most of us would use one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We might use one verse of scripture like John 3.16. Or we might go by the Roman road, but usually we're going to find ourselves in relationship to sharing the gospel. It is going to be in the New Testament where it talks about Jesus and the cross and all of those things. But I shared with you that if you go back to the first century and and to the first believers, the disciples, whenever they went out and began to share Jesus, they didn't have the New Testament. The New Testament had not been written at that time. The Gospels had not been recorded. Paul hadn't written his letter. Peter hadn't written his letter. All they had whenever they preached the Word was the Old Testament. And so I ask you the question, could you share your faith? Could you share your faith with somebody if all you had was the Old Testament? You didn't have the New Testament, couldn't use that at all, but you got the Old Testament. Could you share your faith in Christ? And That being a challenge, I wanted to help you and help me to be able to know at least one passage of Scripture whereby we could park and we could share the gospel of Christ. And I've chosen to use Isaiah 53, called the Suffering Servant Passage. And over the next eight to ten weeks, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 53, which is the gospel according to Isaiah. It's everything that you're going to need. It's going to describe Jesus vividly and to be able to help you to understand that and see that we'll look at phrase by phrase and word by word. Now, my hope and my prayer is that you will learn how to share the gospel any way you can, but also by using using the Old Testament in Isaiah 53. We started there in Isaiah 53 in verse 1 last week when we looked at the very first phrase. He says this, who has believed our message? You remember we talked about that Faith and belief is the central theme, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. A person is saved by faith, not by works. 
They're saved by faith in the Old Testament. They're saved by faith in the New Testament. And Isaiah begins and says, who is going to believe our message? Who is going to believe our report? Who is going to accept what we say and put their faith and trust in that? And he's speaking to two audiences at that time. He's speaking to the audience of Israel. Israel, the chosen people of God, the people that he was ministering to for Isaiah lived 700 years before the coming of Christ. He lived about 80 years, ministered about 80 years in in relationship to that. And he saw a lot of things, and he loved the nation of Israel. So his message, first of all and foremost, is to the nation of Israel. And he asked the question, who of the people of Israel will remember or know or believe my message? But then there's also a second audience, and that second audience is us are everybody who lives in what we call the New Testament era. Everybody who lives after the cross of Christ. Everybody who lives past the resurrection. Now we listen to the report that Isaiah gives and the message that he proclaims. And he says to us, will you believe? Will you believe in this day? Will you believe my report? He says that I'm going to share with you about the Messiah. I'm going to share with you about the one who is going to come and who's going to be that suffering servant. The one who's going to come and pay the price for your sin and going to do all the things necessary to satisfy God in regard to his holiness and his righteousness in relationship to our sin. Are you in the New Testament era going to believe as well? So he has two audiences. Well, listen to the next statement he makes in verse 1 of chapter 53. Who has believed our message? Here's the statement. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, he says this. You ought to believe the message I'm going to proclaim to you because you've seen the arm of the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, the arm of the Lord represents the might and power of God. The might and power of God. He said... Each one of you should believe because you have seen the might and power of God. And when you see and understand the might and power of God, it should cause you to want to believe and accept the report that I'm going to give to you about this Messiah who is yet to come. Well, Israel had no excuse. They should have accepted and seen the message because of the mighty power and the arm of God that they had experienced. Let's talk about their history for a minute. The nation of Israel was birthed out of a miracle, wasn't it? It was. I mean, God called Abraham to be his man and he to follow him and he did follow him. But he was married to Sarah and Sarah was barren and had no children. Therefore, it looked like Abraham would have no children until God comes along and says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to give you a child. It's going to be a miracle child. And he's going to be the one through whom the nation of Israel is birthed. And eventually you're going to have so many descendants as more than the stars of the sky or the sand on the seashore. You're going to have that even though your wife is barren. And man, they truck along there for a while and they try to help God out, which is not the way you don't need to help God out. They didn't need to help him out. That wasn't God's plan. And God finally comes to them whenever they are just before turning 100 years old and 90 years old. She was going to be almost 90. She was almost 90. He was almost 100. And God comes to them and says, you're going to have a baby next year. And remember, Sarah laughed. If you were 89, would you laugh if you were told you're going to have a baby? Laugh or cry one, wouldn't it? And and God says, the messenger of God said, why is she laughing? Why is she laughing? For it shall happen. And about that time the next year she had a baby and they named him Isaac. And his name Isaac means laughter. 
to remind them that they laughed, it, laughed whenever God told them that it was going to be a miracle child. They named him Isaac. Then Isaac turns around and he, he has a child and named him Jacob. And Jacob turns out to be the father and named him, eventually to be called Israel. And he becomes the father of 12 who formed 12 tribes, 12 tribes of Israel. That is the nation of Israel. You see the mighty hand of God working all through that. Then one of, one of those sons was Joseph. Remember what happened to Joseph? He was sold into slavery. But when he went over there and sold into slavery, God gave him favor. And as he had favor, he eventually became the very prime minister of Egypt, second in command. And he was there for what? To preserve the nation of Israel and to allow them to come to a blessed place. Who would ever imagine a boy who was sold into slavery would eventually become the prime minister of Egypt? Only God. That's the hand of God. And he takes and preserves his people. But remember, eventually what happens there in Egypt, they become slaves. One of the pharaohs who no longer knew Joseph made them slaves. And they were slaves for 400 years. God had already foretold Abraham that that would happen. But he said, after that 400 years, that they will be delivered. And God bursts into existence a man named Moses. A little boy who is saved miraculously. By his mother's faith and by Pharaoh's daughter taking him out of the water and adopting him. For 40 years he's educated in Pharaoh's house. But eventually he's going to try to help his people out. And he kills an Egyptian, which he shouldn't have done. And now he has to go spend 40 years on the backside of the Midian desert chasing sheep. Until God calls him through the burning bush and sends him back into Egypt, and there, through all those plagues and all those miraculous events and all of those things that reveal the arm and the power and might of God, finally, Pharaoh says, I will let you go, and he did. And they went out there to the Red Sea, and what's going to happen? Pharaoh changes his mind, and whenever they come to the Red Sea, Israel is afraid, but God parts the Red Sea, the greatest event in the Old Testament era. He parts the Red Sea, they cross on dry ground, then Pharaoh's army enters in, and they're all drowned in the midst of the Red Sea, the mighty power of God. Who would and should believe his report? The people of Israel, but that's not all. Whenever they finally get over there, they make their way through the wilderness. They spend too much time there. It's not supposed to be 40 years, just a few days to get through. But because of their unbelief, they don't make it there. And then Moses can't go in because of his sin, but Joshua was appointed. And whenever Joshua was appointed, they go into the promised land. And even though they're just a, 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 a people who aren't necessarily trained for war and they're not ready for war, and they're going against these large fortified cities and these giants in the land, they win the battle for the, Jer- the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. And they win the battle over and over again. How is that? How could that happen? It's the mighty arm of God. They are without excuse. Then they spend time in the period of the judges and eventually want to have a king, and they do. They have King Saul, and eventually they'll have King David. King David, the man after God's own heart. And then there's King Solomon, and they they have all of those glory of Solomon's wisdom as well as his riches. How could they do that? Because of the mighty hand of God. But in that They have a divided kingdom. There becomes the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah. And both of them turn from God, even though the prophets come and warn them and tell them, do not turn away from God. Isaiah, being one of those main prophets to the nation of Israel, saying, do not turn away from God, but repent and turn back to God. But they refused to listen. So in 722 B.C., Israel fell to the Assyrians. 
And Judah didn't learn anything else. The southern kingdom didn't learn anything about it whenever their sister fell. Because in 587 B.C., they fell to the Babylonians, and they were all carried off into exile. And they thought they were done for good. Except that God had already foretold and promised there would be a man named Cyrus who would be a king. He had never been in existence at that point. But there'd be a man named Cyrus who would give a decree and let them return to their homeland. And you know what? There was a Medo-Persian king whose name was Cyrus. And out of nowhere, he says, you can go back to your homeland and build the temple. How could that happen? It's the mighty arm of God. They go back to their homeland, and they struggle. They struggle to build the temple. They struggle to build the wall in Nehemiah's day. They struggle to build life back as it ought to be. And they still cannot get to where they want to be, but God preserves them and watches over them. And then and then they go into that period when there's a 400 years of, of not hearing from God and all those things. But all through those events... It reveals the mighty arm of God. And Isaiah says, Israel, you are without excuse. You have seen the power of God. You should believe my report. But hold on a second. Before we start pointing our fingers to Israel, he would also say to us, we are without excuse, even far greater. How? We have lived on this side of God incarnate. God has come into this world in the form of man, that being the Son of God. His name was Jesus. We saw him born in Bethlehem. We saw him raised in a carpenter's home. We saw him suffer and die. We saw him have the very attitude that Isaiah said that the suffering servant will have. And we have seen and understand that he has been resurrected We by far of anyone should know the mighty arm of God, and therefore we should receive his report. Once again, Isaiah, when he asked that question, who will receive it, questions whether the majority of people will receive his message when everyone, especially in our era, should receive that message. We've seen the mighty arm of God. Now, then he moves in to describing this person who is so very, very important. This person called the suffering servant. Or this person who is the Messiah. Or the person that we're going to be able to identify and know as Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who suffered and paid the price for my sin. And all of that's being described by Isaiah 700 years before Jesus is ever born. See, that's the power of prophecy. God uses prophecy for this reason. He wants to tell us what is going to happen so that when it does happen, just as he said it would happen, we can do nothing but acknowledge it is the hand of God. Amen? I mean, when God tells you this is what's going to happen... And this is what's going to take place. And then you're able to take and go through history and follow exactly how it took place. Just like he said it. We know it has to be somebody beyond man. It has to be God who knows the beginning from the end. And here 700 years ahead. He's going to describe this one who's coming. This suffering servant. This one who's going to pay the price for our sin. Who is the Messiah. So let's look at some of the facts that he says about this suffering servant. Look there in verse number two. Here's what he says. First thing. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot 
And like a root, uh, like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. Leave your Bibles open there as we look at each one of these phrases. First thing he says, he uses the personal pronoun he. If you want to write in your Bible, that's the Messiah. That's Jesus, okay? Jesus is the one who, here's the first thing. Jesus is the one who grew up. Who grew up. Now, what does that tell us about this one who's coming, the Messiah who's coming? It tells us this, that when he comes, he's going to come in the form of a baby. He's not going to be a man. He's not going to be a man that's just going to come and be dropped out of, by God onto a mountain somewhere or out into a valley somewhere or somewhere. And this man has been appointed and anointed that he is going to be the Messiah. He is a man and he came here as a man. It's not going to be the fact that he is formed out of the dust of the earth like Adam, the, the first Adam was, formed out of the dust of the earth and is a state of maturity. And you know his maturity because he can multiply. He's old enough to do that. He's not going to form the Messiah out of the dust of the earth. He's not going to be a man. He is going to be a child and he is going to grow up. He grew up. So, if you want to find the Messiah and you want to look for the Messiah at the time when he comes, you, you don't need to be looking for him as being a man. You don't need to be looking at him as being the one who is already there, who has been dropped out of the sky. But if you want to find the Messiah and the story of the Messiah, you're going to find a baby. You're going to see a baby. And that's exactly what Isaiah had said in other passages. He says, a child will be born to a virgin in Isaiah 7, 14. He says in Isaiah 9, 6, he says, a child will be given to us. He is telling us everywhere that this one who is the Messiah is going to come in the form of a baby and is going to have to grow up. Here's the second thing. Look what it says there in verse 53. He grew up before him. You need to circle those words, before him. Now, that pronoun is not him. It's not about Jesus. It's about God. God the Father. God the Father. He grew up before God the Father. Now, what that means is, is that God was fostering care over the Son of God. He was watching over this child, the Son of God, when he sent him. He is watching over him diligently and carefully. One commentator said this, God the Father has his eyes fixed upon the Son. <laughs> I like that. I mean, when that baby was brought here to Bethlehem, the Father's eyes were fixed upon that child, and those eyes never come off of his Son. You mamas know, don't you? Your mamas are a lot better than daddies. When you got a baby, your mamas keep your eyes on them everywhere. You got an eye, you got them everywhere. You always know where they are. We dads, we kind of uh, appear every once in a while and say, where'd that baby go? <laughs> Have y'all seen him lately? But not mamas. Mamas are always going to know where that child is. That's the picture of the father. The father has fixed his eyes upon the son. As he sent from heaven, remember, he preexisted in heaven. Jesus is the eternal God. As he was in heaven, he was brought to this earth, and the eyes of the Father are on him, and he is before the Father always. In what ways? Well, he found 
A woman who is willing to bear a child, even though she's a virgin and has never known a man, and is going to be ridiculed and misunderstood by that, he found Mary, and Mary is the one who said yes. He found Joseph, who is going to be a submissive father, who, even though he's not the natural-born father of this one, is going to accept the fact that this child is a gift from God. He is the Messiah. He is the Emmanuel. And he's going to take on the responsibility of watching over him and caring for him. God is watching in each of those situations. Even beyond that, what happens? Whenever, Whenever Jesus is born and whenever the wise men came to see Jesus... Herod finds out that there was one who's supposed to be the king of the Jews who's born. And whenever he finds out what city it is, he sends an army to kill all the children, all the son, uh, the boys from two years of age and under in that particular city of Bethlehem. And what did God do? Before it was time for them to come and to kill, before the army happened, he woke up Joseph and told Joseph, you need to get out of Egypt. You need to get out of Bethlehem and go to Egypt in order to preserve my son. The father's eyes were always on his son. And when it was time, he tells Joseph, come out of Egypt, it's safe. But he directs him not to go to Jerusalem, where you would naturally think that the Messiah would live, but rather to go to a city named Nazareth. And there is the place that he will dwell, the place of safety. And therefore, he would be called a Nazarene. Each and every one of those things are happening as he is being watched over by the Father. You don't find out very much about Jesus' life until he's 12 years old. You remember what happens at 12? They go to the temple. When they go to the temple, his mom and daddy leave him. Mom wasn't watching too close at that time, but at that, that particular time, leaves him there. They make a day's journey. They have to travel back. And what God the Father has been watching over him all the time is he is in the Father's house. And he amazes people by what he says and the questions that he asks. The Father's eyes are always upon him. From the very beginning of his ministry, he is protected. You remember whenever there's a storm that's happening and his disciples wake him up and say, Don't you care you're sleeping? Don't you care we're about to die? Jesus wasn't worried in the midst of that storm. Why? Because the Father's eyes were upon him. On another occasion, when there's a storm and Jesus sent him out before he goes, he comes walking on the water in the midst of the storm. Why? Because the Father's eyes are upon him. Whenever he begins his ministry, he has opposition. There are on two different occasions that says they were going to pick up stones to stone him. Or they're going to throw him off over the Nazareth cliff. They're going to do something to him. And it says he walks through in the midst of them unharmed. Why? Because the Father's eyes were upon him. And he walked before the Father. You say, well, wait a minute, Brother Mac. He eventually is going to die. He does die to accomplish God's purpose. But even in the midst of that, his eyes of the Father were upon him. Because Jesus said this, You do not take my life, but I lay it down. I lay my life down. See, my friend, the God the Father was watching over him and caring for him and ministering to him in every way. Here's a truth I want you to write down if you think about this. The Son of God was just as safe and cared for every day on this earth as he was when he dwelt in heaven. Do you understand that? He was just as much cared for 
and ministered to before the eyes of the Father right here, right now, in this world as he ever was when he was in heaven. Because why? Because he grew up. He grew up before him, before the Father. That's a wonderful, glorious truth. That's not all, though. What it says next. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. A tender shoot, a sapling, or another word for that is suckling. It's the, it's the idea that there would be this dry land and there's no moisture in the soil. And right out of that dry land, there would come this tall, succulent plant. It, it would just come in. In, in their arena, in that particular environment, that, that's not unusual. Be a dry place, everything looks dead, and, and out of one spot, here's this plant that comes up, and it's high, and it looks vibrant. You know what it tells you about that plant? It tells you that it reaches deeper and has a deeper relationship, and its root system is totally deeper to be able to get out of moisture and life where there seems to be no life. You know what Jesus is? You know what Jesus was when he came here? Jesus comes and he is going to be that tender shoot, that sapling that is going to stand up and rise up in the midst of a dry and parched land, which lets us know that just like that sapling and that succulent plant that stands up has a deeper relationship with that soil, Jesus Christ, whenever he can shine in all his glory in the midst of the world he lived in, reveals he has a far deeper relationship that we understand, that we know he's the son of God who walks with God, who talks with God, and who reveals to us that that we can know God in the same way. He was a tender shoot, it says, a tender shoot that springs up. Notice what else it says about him. And like a root out of parched ground. He's not only a, a tender shoot, he's also going to be a root, a root. Now, that root is talking about two things. It's interesting I told Kevin, Kevin didn't know exactly what I was preaching. He knew where the passage was. But did y'all hear the, uh, the last song that they sang? When it talks about the root and this Messiah, this suffering servant is going to be the root. What's it talking about? Well, the first thing it talks about is it's talking about the root of David. See, the promise was given to David that David would always have a king on the throne. That there would always be, that it would be an eternal king on the throne. Why? Wow, look bleak at sometimes. But when the Messiah comes in the midst of all the bleakness there, when the Messiah comes, he's going to be a son of David who is eventually going to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is going to reveal the lineage and the kingship of David, for he is of the root of David. That song that they sang in the chorus, it says, The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave, he is David's root. And the lamb who died to ransom the slave. In Revelation twenty two sixteen, he says he is the root and the offspring of David. And what, what uh, Isaiah is saying here is in the midst of all the bleakness and all the darkness and everything that's happening, the promise that God made to David is going to be fulfilled. The fact that the kingship is going to be eternal is going to be fulfilled. And out of this Messiah is going to raise up one who is going to be that lineage of David, who is going to be that king, the king that God had promised. But not only is the root on the side for David, it's also 
He is the root of the birthing of his church. You know, when Jesus came, he started the church. The church started with Jesus, and the church will be here till the church is raptured. We are Jesus' church. And the way that the church started is that Jesus is the root of the church. He is the one who gives life and purpose and meaning to each and every one of us and to his church. And when Jesus came, he had a purpose in the past, a fulfillment. He has a purpose in the future. He's the one who's going to give birth and life to his church. But notice what it says about that. Don't miss that. It says, like a root out of parched ground. What was the situation? What was the situation whereby the Messiah was going to come? Was he going to be the a great and wonderful day? Was it going to be a day you expect, man, the Messiah must come today because it's close, so everybody's so close to God and walking close to God? No, that's not the way it was. Not at all. Matter of fact, this is the, this is the story of what happens. The, the worst of times in Israel was in the time of the divided kingdom. In that divided kingdom, I told you, in 722, Israel fell. In 587, then Judah fell. And, and then beyond that fact, they were defeated and they were carried off into exile, never thinking they're going to get to come back. And then finally, they get to return, and boy, they have a struggle. They were, have to work hard just to make life and everything else. And, and spiritually, they're nowhere where they ought to be. And God foretells them this. It says, because of your hardness of heart and because you will not respond to me, there are going to be 400 years of silence. Amos said this in his writing. He says, there is a famine that is coming upon the land, not a famine for need of food, but a famine for the word of God. For people will search for the word of God and there will be no word from God. Could you imagine that? That would be a horrifying thing for Israel. Think about for 400 years, there was never a word from God. No one stood up and said, thus saith the Lord. No one stood up and proclaimed. It was the bleakest time in the history of Israel. It was a parched, dry land. It was a parched, dry world. It was a difficult time to live in. Religion was active, but it had no power. And no one heard a word from God. Until you hear a voice crying in the wilderness and that voice is the voice of john the baptist who has been sent to be the forerunner of the messiah and he comes and says make ready the way of the lord repent and make ready the way of the lord and what he does is he announces that what isaiah has promised is coming what all the prophets said is coming. The Messiah is coming. And when and how is he coming? He's coming in the midst of a parched, dry, wearisome world. Not what you would expect at all for the time for the Messiah to come. But God shows up. He shows up. And it's not like he, he hasn't already told them. 700 years beforehand, he says, what? He says, he grew up before him like a tender shoot 
And like a root out of parched ground, he is coming. Notice what else he says. He has no stately form or majesty. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. He said, if you're going to go look for the Messiah, don't go look in the palace. The Messiah is not going to be born in the palace. He's not going to be living in the palace. He's not going to have majesty. He's not going to have the royal robes and all the garb and all the things that you would expect him to have. That's not where you're going to find the Messiah. He is not going to be there But rather, who would ever imagine that if you're going to find the Messiah and you're going to look at the one who is going to be this suffering servant and the one who's eventually going to die and pay the price for sin, you have to go to a little city named Nazareth and you have to go to a carpenter shop and you have to find a little boy there in that carpenter shop and you can say, there he is. That's the one who is going to be the Messiah. That's the one that Isaiah talked about. That is the one who's the suffering servant. You don't find him in the palaces. You find him in the carpenter shop. And it says that we we do not look upon him or look upon his appearance because what we do in human life is this. We're constantly looking at things from the outside, the flowering grass, aren't we? And so if he were dressed in royal robes and the garb of all the majesty, everybody looks at that. Everybody's amazed at all the beauty of that. But it says you're not going to see him that way. You're not going to see him with the flowering grass of life upon him. But what's far more important, and it's interesting that Gary quoted a very important verse about that, that what God sees is not the outward man, but God sees the heart. And the Messiah is not coming to impress people with his royal robes when he first appears. He's not going to come that way. He's going to come rather as a common man. That no one would notice, that no one would ever grab hold of, that no one would ever focus upon. He's not the royalty. He's the common man. And the Messiah is going to come as a common man because he comes for everyone. I don't know about you. I would have a hard time relating royalty because there's nothing about us that's royal at all. (laughs) I have a hard time relating to royalty, but I can relate to somebody who's common. And the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the suffering servant, when he comes the first time, he comes as common man so that anybody and everybody could relate to him. Anybody and everybody could talk with him. Anybody and everybody could be touched by him. So don't look in the palace. Look in Nazareth to find him. Don't expect to be impressed The first time he comes by what he's wearing, but more about who he is. But wait just a second. When he comes the second time, what he's wearing is going to be pretty impressive. Amen? When he comes the second time, then all the royalty and all the garb that he is worthy of will be his. And he'll be king of kings and lord of lords. But here is Isaiah 700 years before The Messiah is going to come, the suffering servant. And he says, listen, here's who he is. Here's what's going to happen. He's coming as a baby, watched over by the father, like a tender shoot coming forth 
revealed and he has a relationship that most people do not know and do not have. He's going to be a root that's going to fulfill the promise to David while being the root of the establishment of the church. And that root is going to give life in the midst of a parched and dry land. Oh, don't look for him in the palace, for it's not going to be the fact that something you look for, and you're going to be impressed by what he says, because he is going to come as a common man, relating to you the first time, that everyone can see him and know him and understand, for he is coming to do something for you. And what he's coming to do, Isaiah's going to talk about, he's coming to pay the price for your sin. He's coming to suffer for you. He's coming to take your place. And Isaiah says, listen to our report. Listen to our report. See the strong arm of God wherever and whenever you live. That you would hear our report and that you would believe our report. And that you would respond to the Son of God, the Messiah, the suffering servant, the one Isaiah says, I have described. Have you given your heart to Jesus? (laughs) I'm here to tell you, you can relate to Jesus because he came to relate to you. And he loved you enough to die on the cross to pay the price for your sin. And the father loved you enough to send his son, watching over his son every step of the way to fulfill his purpose and plan. And that is your redemption, your salvation. If you've never given your heart to Jesus, today ought to be the day you say yes to Jesus. Today ought to be the day that you give your heart to him totally and absolutely and say, I want to be saved by the one who suffered for me and I put my faith and my trust in him. You ought to say, I want to believe your report, Isaiah, and I want to respond to what you've said and what you've told me is going to happen and what has happened and I've been able to see. If you've never given your heart to Jesus, give your heart to Jesus today. That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.